before uh, Holy Week begins on Ash Wednesday, we're going to be reading the story of Holy Week in the book of John this year. We have uh, these stories of the end of Christ's life in all four of the Gospels, and we sort of rotate which Gospel we read which year. So this year we're reading the Gospel of John. So for the next two weeks before Palm Sunday, we are going to be reading the two stories that lead up to the events of Holy Week in the Gospel of John. Not just because they're sort of proximal and close by, but because these stories, according to the writer of the Gospel of John, actually lead directly into the events of Holy Week. It's important to understand what Jesus and his disciples were doing in the week before they went into Jerusalem for Passover. So our first story is a familiar one, but you've probably heard the Reader's Digest version of this. I don't think we often, in the service, read the entire story with every bit and piece included in it. Uh, This is from John chapter 11. This is the story of the raising of Lazarus. But it includes verses that we often sort of uh, abridge over when we gather to read this story. So from John chapter 11. Now a certain man was ill, Lazarus of Bethany, the village of Mary and her sister Martha. Mary was the one who anointed the Lord with perfume and wiped his feet with her hair. Her brother Lazarus was ill. So the sisters sent a message to Jesus, Lord, he whom you love is ill. But when Jesus heard it, he said, The illness does not lead to death. Rather, it is for God's glory, so that the Son of God might be glorified through it. Accordingly, Though Jesus loved Martha and her sister and Lazarus, after having heard that Lazarus was ill, he stayed two days longer in the place that he was. Then after this, he said to his disciples, let's go to Judea again. The disciples said to him, Rabbi, the Jews were just now trying to stone you, and are you going there again? Jesus answered, are there not twelve hours of daylight? Those who walk during the day do not stumble because the light is not in them. After saying this, he told them, Our friend Lazarus has fallen asleep, but I am going there to awaken him. The disciples said, Lord, if he's only fallen asleep, everything's going to be fine. Jesus, however, had been speaking about his death, but they thought they were only referring to sleep. Then Jesus told them plainly, Lazarus is dead. For your sake, I am glad I was not there so that you may believe, but let us go to him. Thomas, who was called the twin, said to his fellow disciples, Let us also go, that we might die with him. When Jesus arrived, he found that Lazarus had already been in the tomb four days. Now Bethany was near Jerusalem, some two miles away, and many of the Jews had come to Mary and Martha to console them about their brother. When Martha heard that Jesus was coming, She went and met him while Mary stayed at home. Martha said to Jesus, Lord, if only you had been here, my brother would not have died. But even now I know that God will give you whatever you ask of him. Jesus said to her, your brother will rise again. And Martha said, I know that he will rise again in the resurrection on the last day. Jesus said to her, I am the resurrection and the life. Those who believe in me, even though they die, they will live. And everyone who lives and believes in me will never die. Do you believe this? And she said to him, Yes, Lord, I believe that you are the Messiah, the Son of God, the one coming into the world. When she had said this, she went back and called to her sister Mary and told her privately, The teacher is here. He is calling for you. 
And when she heard it, she got up quickly and went to him. Now Jesus had not yet come to the village, but was still at the place where Martha had met him. The Jews who were with her in the house consoling her saw Mary get up quickly and go out. They followed her because they thought she was going to the tomb to weep there. When Mary came to where Jesus was and saw him, she knelt at his feet and said to him, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. When Jesus saw her weeping and the Jews who came with her also weeping, he was greatly disturbed in spirit and so moved. He said, where have you laid him? They said to him, Lord, come and see. Jesus began to weep. So the Jews said, see how he loved him. But some of them said, could not he who opened the eyes of the blind man have kept this man from dying? Then Jesus, again greatly disturbed, came to the tomb. It was a cave. A stone was lying against it. Jesus said, take away the stone. Martha, the sister of the dead man, said to him, Lord, already there is a stench because he has been in there four days. Jesus said to her, did I not tell you that if you believed, you would see the glory of God? So they took away the stone, and Jesus looked upward and said, Father, I thank you for having heard me. I know that you are always near me, but I have said this for the sake of the crowd standing here, so that they might believe that you have sent me. When he said this, he cried out in a loud voice, Lazarus, come out. The dead man came out, his hands and feet bound with strips of cloth, and his face wrapped in a cloth. And Jesus said to them, Unbind him and let him go. Many of the Jews, therefore, who had come with Mary and had seen what Jesus did, believed in him. But some of them went to the Pharisees and told them what he had done. So the chief priests and the Pharisees called a meeting of the council and said, What are we to do? This man is performing many signs. If we let him go on like this, everyone will believe in him, and the Romans will come and destroy both our holy place and our nation. But one of them, Caiaphas, who was the high priest that year, said to them, you know nothing at all. You do not understand that it is expedient for you to have one man die for the people than to have a whole nation destroyed. So from that day on, they planned to put him to death. Jesus, therefore, no longer walked about openly among the Jews, but went from there to a town called Ephraim in the region near the wilderness, and he remained there with his disciples. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Um, now, I am sure that you all are just far more culturally serious and well-developed than I am, and I, I just absolutely doubt that any one of you would ever be caught dead in a hospital waiting room or at the dentist's office picking up and flipping through a People magazine. But if you were as lowbrow as I occasionally am, you would notice that at the beginning of every People magazine, there's this sort of hilarious section that they call stars. They're just like us. And it's filled with these page spreads of photos doing, of stars doing totally normal things. Like, hey, look, Ben Affleck is buying coffee at Starbucks. Or Taylor Swift is walking out of a gym. Maybe she was exercising. Or something like, you know, Tom Hanks is eating food with his son at a restaurant. Like, completely absurd things that are totally not worth actually seeing photos of unless it was something like Beyonce taking out her trash, because I really don't think Beyonce has touched a trash bag in probably like a decade or more. We sort of like looking at these silly pictures of famous people doing ordinary things, 
Because I think we like to remember that famous people are, in fact, kind of like us here and there. They take their kids to school, and they go to the grocery store, and they fly on airplanes, sometimes even in the regular airport like the rest of us do. I think we actually probably have the better end of the deal because we're not being followed around by a pack of paparazzi taking pictures of us uh, when we don't have our hair done or our makeup on doing totally normal chores around the house. But I think we have a habit of not just doing this with like famous you know, celebrities and all of that. We tend to do this to Jesus also. Like We think of Jesus as someone who is not just sort of famous, but we like to imagine that he is nothing at all like any of us. We tend to look at Jesus and think, you know what, he is, he's God, he's the son of God, rather than imagining him as a person, just like you and I. So when someone says Jesus, I think the images that come to mind are often things like turning water into wine. I notice there's um, a billboard on 23 North as you're leaving Milan of a wine glass under a, um, like a water faucet, and the water faucet's turned on with wine coming out of it says got faith or something like that. I just I thought that was, oh yeah, that's a clever image of who Jesus is. He turns water into wine. He feeds 5,000 people at the drop of a hat, or he walks on water, or in today's story, of course, he actually raises someone from the dead. He opens up this smelly tomb and says, Lazarus, come out of there, and lo and behold, a man dead four days walks out. We sort of imagine Jesus almost as this um, first century magician of sorts. He sort of floats around on a little cloud in sparkly white robes, and he zaps the crowd with his magical fingers, healing people as he goes. And we have this ingrained habit of making Jesus out to be something other than just an ordinary human being. And when we do that, we actually are causing two problems. The first is that it's heretical, like it is actually a heresy to think that way. Around the second century, there was this group of folks called the Docetists. And in Greek, that basically just means the Illusionists. And this group, the Illusionists, or the Docetists, basically walked around saying that Jesus is all God, and he just appears to be human. He's sort of like a hologram or an illusion or a trick of the light. He's really all God, not at all human. Now, this was unequivocally declared a heresy in 325 of the Council of Nicaea, The early church thought this was heretical. We still think this is heretical here today. We believe that Jesus is both fully God and also fully human. Jesus is another person, just like you and I. But honestly, heresy isn't really my issue with this. I think a little heresy here and there is inevitable and somewhat interesting. Like it makes us, you know, somewhat human to believe heretical things from time to time. It keeps us on our toes. But the major issue that I have with this is that when we make Jesus all God and not at all human, he becomes completely unrelatable to us as everyday human beings. He becomes like that celebrity in the photo, in the magazine. We really just can't believe that he goes to the store to buy food like anyone else. And the problem with this isn't just that it creates distance between us and Jesus, but I think it also lets us off the hook a little bit. If Jesus is nothing like us, then we cannot be expected to follow Christ's examples, to be like Christ, because Christ, after all, wasn't like any one of us, is sort of what this heresy leads us toward. Now, in the medieval ages, they were so concerned about this heresy that one of the debates that people would actually sit around and have, and by people, I mean like old white male theologians who we still have writings from, 
And they would sit around and they would discuss the question about whether or not Jesus laughed. And there are thousands of pages of medieval theology about this single question. Did Jesus ever laugh? And there was one camp of folks who said, no, no, of course not. Of course Jesus didn't laugh. That's just far too base, far too human for him to ever do. And there were other folks who said, well, you know, if Jesus was fully human, then yeah, maybe, maybe he laughed from time to time. Maybe his disciples, you know, cracked a joke here or there. And then there was this other group of people who thought that the, even asking the question was so absolutely and fundamentally offensive to the great God of the universe that anyone who was even discussing it, whether they agreed or not, they should all be excommunicated as heretics, thrown out of the church. You should not even say the words in the same sentence, Jesus and laughter just absolutely outside the realm of possibility. And again, it's this idea that Jesus is so powerful, so different, so distant from us, that Jesus couldn't possibly be like any one of us. And we, in turn, couldn't possibly be like Christ in any way, shape, or form. But I think this story that we read today about Lazarus and his sisters, Mary and Martha, I think that this story actually shows us a very different side of Jesus. Now, of course, the sort of elephant in the room with the story is the fact that this is a story about Jesus raising someone from the dead. And that's not a normal, everyday occurrence that any one of us are going out and doing in our discipleship to Christ. At least you haven't told me whether this is something you have done. And if you had, please schedule a meeting with me. I would really love to hear about this part of your life as a Christian. But this is not something that is unique to Jesus in the Bible. You could look up stories of Peter and Paul and Elijah and Elisha. They all have stories of raising people from the dead. But even though this happens here and there, I mean, let's be honest. This is significant. It is miraculous. This is a huge thing for Jesus to do. And it has a significant impact on us looking at Jesus and sensing some distance there. We don't raise people from the dead, but Jesus does. But if we set aside that miracle in the story for just a second and we look at the rest of it, the bulk of what John is actually saying about here, I think we see a story that is really about friendship and it's about families and relationships. And this is a story about how Jesus is human. He's a part of this community where this event is taking place. The very first time we hear about Lazarus in this story, he's introduced to us as the one whom Jesus loves. This is the first trait we hear about his sisters, Mary and Martha as well. We hear that Jesus loves them. And when Jesus finally goes to see his friends, Lazarus is already dead. Martha and Jesus sort of go on this little walk outside of town and they're talking together about the resurrection. And Martha is sort of understandably angry. And she says, you know what, Lord, if only you were here, if only, then maybe Lazarus wouldn't be dead. And they continue to have this conversation about the resurrection. And by biblical standards, like a conversation that goes on more than a couple of lines, this is downright rambling. Like Martha's just talking and talking here. And it sounds like in her talking around the question of the resurrection, you can almost sort of hear the grief behind what she's saying. That she's grieving the loss of her brother, and she's doing so in the presence of her friend in the presence of Jesus, this person who is known to her and who is safe for her to grieve around. And then Jesus sends Martha back, and Mary comes out to meet him, and Mary and Jesus go to Lazarus' tomb. And along the way, as they're going, 
Jesus notices in the crowd around him. He notices that Mary is weeping. And he notices all of these friends and people who have gathered, who loved Lazarus. And he sees that the crowd is weeping. And in seeing their grief, Jesus wept. It's the shortest verse of the Bible, and the NRSV sort of does us a disservice by translating it, Jesus began to weep. We know it better. It's simply, Jesus wept. As he's walking to the tomb of his close friend, he sees the grief and the pain of these people around him, and he wept. Now, I don't think Jesus weeping is the action of a man who knows that he is confidently going to walk up to this tomb and snap his fingers, and then, poof, Lazarus is going to appear again. I mean, it seems that Jesus knows that this miracle is going to happen, and that might be sort of the godly side of Jesus, right? Like, he knows he can bring Lazarus back from the dead. But in walking to the tomb with this grieving crowd of folks, Jesus is also weeping over the loss of his friend and the pain that these people around him are feeling, Mary and Martha and the people of the village. And maybe he's even weeping a bit about the fact that he arrived four days too late to make a difference himself. And to me, this part of the story is a more powerful example of how Jesus is both a human being, a man, just like any one of us, and he is also the Son of God. I mean, even more so than the raising of Lazarus from the dead and all of that. Because in this part of the story, what we see is that Jesus is, at his core, a very human character in Scripture. He was a very human person. He experienced life in relationship with his friends He walked on dusty roads, and he cried over the grief and loss of a loved one. And so when I read this, I think to myself, you know, this this resonates for me. Because for me, life isn't about, like, all the big, like, miraculous, wonderful, unexpected things that happen. Life is so much more about how we live ourselves in just, like, the ordinary ins and outs of our days with our families and our friends our colleagues, and the people that we sort of just see all the time everywhere. I think this is the reason that People Magazine publishes those photos and we look at them every single time one of those new magazines comes out because we want to see photos of celebrities who are, in fact, relatable. We want to know that at least on some level they struggle with the same things that we do, that they also sometimes get frustrated with long TSA lines at the airport. And the story of Jesus, I think, is sort of the biblical equivalent. It's about Jesus. He's just like us. It's not about Jesus. Look, he can raise someone from the dead. This is a distinction that, for John, in this gospel, it's going to become really important, especially as we move closer to Holy Week. Because this story, as we pick up at the end with that little paragraph about Caiaphas and the other priests plotting, that it is more expedient to kill one man than to allow the entire nation to fall. We're going to see that this story about Mary and Martha and Lazarus, this is sort of the spark that starts things off in the direction headed toward Passover in just a few weeks' time. They're so worried, these high priests, they're so worried that if people keep seeing this Jesus of Nazareth walking around, that the Roman Empire is going to notice what's happening. And Rome isn't going to like it, and they're going to come, and they're going to crush Israel and all of the Jewish people. So, you know, let's, let's get rid of this instigator. Let's get rid of this one person and save the rest of our people. So 
They're saying this in part because Jesus raised Lazarus from the dead. I mean, it's a big, miraculous sign that people are going to notice. And people might initially follow Jesus, just like they're going to initially follow a political candidate or a pastor or any other sort of leader. You might follow someone initially because of some big, flashy, showy thing that they do. But you're really only going to stick around if that person is relatable, if they also uh, have heart and honesty behind the prayers that they pray. It's not just empty words. A pastor who doesn't just preach something from the pulpit and look very different Monday morning, go off and live a very different life. A politician who says something during election season, but you know for a fact is just going to go out and not live up to any of those policies if they're really elected. And this is what works with Jesus here. Like Jesus goes out and he does these fantastic miracles. But then on top of that, you can tell that there's a heart there. He really cares about these people. His prayers are not merely empty words. He is sort of the genuine article. He has the miracles, but he has the humanity there as well. And I think that's really what Caiaphas and these other priests are worried about here. They're not as worried about the individual flashy, showy things. They're worried that Jesus is too compelling of a leader, that the people will follow him for who he is. So in these next couple weeks, as we get our hearts and minds prepared to walk into the season of Holy Week, beginning on Palm Sunday, I would invite us to meditate for the next two weeks on what makes Jesus really compelling in his humanity. What makes him look like one of us, our brother, and not just the great high God of all the universe? And that in reflecting on who Jesus was as a person, we see in there the invitation for us as disciples of Christ to learn to emulate who he was, to do the work of his hands and feet now in the relationships that we already find ourselves in. So thanks be to God for being one of us. Amen.